listening to Pythagoras' Trousers. Hello and welcome to this month's Pythagorean Astronomy with me, Chris North. And me, Edward Gomez. And if it's not too late, a happy new year to everyone. Um, it's uh, a little way into the year now, but it's our first one of 2023. Uh, now, 2023 started uh, with a bang on UK soil. Um, sadly, a bit of a, a less exciting bang than we might have hoped with a launch of a rocket from uh, UK soil. Virgin Orbit's Launcher 1 uh, took off um, uh, somewhat uh, 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 naively. You might not expect this from a, from a plane. So a plane took off from Cornwall. Uh, a plane called Cosmic Girl took off from Cornwall, flew over the Atlantic and then dropped a rocket. Um, and that all went swimmingly. The rocket uh, jetted off uh, into the upper atmosphere. And Edward, that's where it went a little bit wrong. Yes. Uh, so I really like the idea of launching rockets on the back of planes. It reminds it's sort of reminiscent of the space shuttle um, uh, being flown around from the different Obviously, they never launched the space shuttle on a plane, but that's how they transported it from the, the different um, landing sites um, uh, or the shuttles, I should say. So, um, but there's, you know, there's nothing to, you just, you don't really need to um, launch a rocket with the, the, the giant boosters. You could just get it above a certain altitude and then just sort of fire up the rocket and let it go, um, which is what they did. Um, and it sort of, lasted a little bit by itself but um the upper stage of the rocket uh had an anomaly uh as the uh, as the uh, the engineers called it and the well probably the, the the press office of virgin orbit have called it and that meant that it didn't ever reach orbit uh which was obviously what what it was aiming for um which is a shame because i do like this idea uh this sort of novel way of launching rockets it's, it feels like it's more sustainable than like um stuffing a whole load of explosives into the uh, boosters yeah it does, and it's um uh, it, it, as you say it, it gets rid of a lot of that um uh the the yeah the explosives in the in the booster to get it off the ground so much of the fuel in a rocket is to get the thing off the ground and moving quickly if you can do it with a plane that can be more uh, more efficient and of course people are looking to you know in the future of using much more sustainable fuels in planes for example so that would be uh that would be good um virgin orbit have had this this uh launcher one system uh since 2020 it failed the first one then it has had a few successful missions and this one from cornwall has, has failed it's going to return back to uh the back to the us uh, the mojave desert i think where it launches most of its its rockets uh from above there um but there are plans for it to come back to, to UK soil. I think it marks the first launch, first launch from UK soil, and the first launch from Europe. I think from the you know European soil, because most of European, uh, every other European rocket rocket launch has either been from Russia or from uh, French Guiana um, over the last decades uh, of the space program. So uh, fingers crossed it can come back, and there are plans for other launch uh, sites around the UK as well, from the north of Scotland and uh, and so on uh, as well. It included a satellite or some satellites from Spaceforge, which is a Cardiff-based company. So um, commiserations to them. Um, I hope they had insurance to to, uh, to rebuild. <laughs> I, I assume one normally does get insurance for these kinds of things. Um, well, maybe not. I mean, it's well, probably very hard. Yeah. It's probably very hard to get insurance. Yeah, for... Maybe compensation from Virgin um, <laughs> of some sort. Uh, On to sort of science stories, uh, JWST, the James Webb Space Telescope, has uh, made uh, its first 
detection or co first confirmation of a, an exoplanet, a planet around uh, another star, uh, which is um, which is a, a first for that that telescope. Uh, which is always good to uh, see these first, and it's also been able to look at the atmosphere. So this is this is a planet that was first proposed by the Transiting Exoplanet Survey Satellite TESS um, uh, 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 back in. Actually, I don't know when that was. Um, so first proposed by TESS, the Transiting Exoplanet uh, Survey Satellite, but it didn't get a particularly firm detection. It took the sensitivity of of JWST to uh, really see it in detail, um, uh, and uh, and learn more about the, the atmosphere or lack thereof yeah this is um uh it's 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 easy to become blasé about exoplanet detections when there's several thousands of them i remember back in the mid 90s when the very first exoplanet um uh 51 pegasi b was discovered and it took quite a long time for it to to get going but now we have you know multiple satellites looking at exoplanets and and thousands of telescopes on the ground um, looking at them. Um, but this one is quite interesting because it's about the same size as Earth um, and uh, which is not unheard of. It's extremely close to its star, which is a red dwarf, so it's cooler. It's about half the temperature of um, our sun. Um, and it whizzes round about every two Earth days. So almost completely different to the Earth, except for its size. But that makes it very difficult to detect. Um, and um, the other thing that uh, James Webb has been able to do is uh, it's been able to take a spectrum of uh, the, the scattered light um, from uh, the planet itself. Uh, and that's something which is extremely difficult to do from Earth because the atmosphere gets in the way. Um, and that can tell you a lot about um, whether there is an atmosphere, uh, whether, you know, what type of planet it is and potential habitability. Um, now, this one's almost certainly not habitable because it's it's extremely close to its star. Uh, so it's going to be uh, really hot. Uh, we don't know what, you know, how it's rotating. So it could be, you know, like Mercury, uh, extremely hot on one side and extremely cold on the other side. It also doesn't appear to have an atmosphere, although it has what's called a flat um, spectrum. So it could be that it has a very uniform, thick atmosphere like Venus, um, which is dominated by carbon dioxide or um, in the upper layers. Uh, or it could be that it's like Mars and it doesn't have an atmosphere, you know, almost no atmosphere to speak of. Um, so... Um, Either way, it's, it's essentially got a, not... a, a, You could think of it as having a grey spectrum, I suppose, couldn't it? If it's flat, it's got no particular colour. So it's almost as if look, yeah. trying to tell whether someone's coloured in a picture of a planet, whether is it red or is it blue or is it green? Well, it's none of those. Well, they could have used a grey crayon and you wouldn't be able to tell whether they just there was there was nothing there or whether it was this particularly sort of boring spectrum you get from I think carbon dioxide is the the one that's theorised in this part of the spectrum as being grey and, and possible. We see that in our solar system with, with carbon, carbon dioxide dominated atmospheres. So um uh, no no firm detection of that but uh, uh, fascinating that we can now get to that level to start to determine these things yeah absolutely really really this is like cutting edge science being able to do this and it's something which has been impossible up to this point so um although the a new exoplanet isn't that exciting actually the the science that is being done on this exoplanet is actually really really quite exciting and really shows um, the JWST power. Mm. Yeah. 
Speaking of, of, of things that are showing the the, the power of, uh, of detections, um, the power of things out in space is, is uh, demonstrated quite ably by supernovae. You, you found a, an interesting supernova that um, as, as it's a cosmic, we talk about supernovae as cosmic fireworks. This looks like a firework as well. PA30, um, a <laughs> few thousand yeah, light years away, but uh, look, the image looks fun. Yeah, and um, it was so bright that 850 years ago it was logged by Chinese and Japanese astronomers um, and it was visible for about six months. Um, so we've had quite a long time to study it. Um, the interesting thing about it is that um, it, it looks like a firework, like you said, Chris. Um, that's not what supernovae normally look like. Um, you know, we tend to call them fireworks because they're explosions in the sky. Uh, but uh, this is actually a rarity having this type of shape. They normally uh, look like a bubble uh, when we take a picture of them. There's normally um, like a thick bit, uh, like a circle around the edge uh, that you can see. There's some that are called a crab type, a crab nebula type, and these tend to have uh, filaments. But, but overall, it still looks bubbly, even though um, there's sort of filaments on, on the surface of the bubble. This one... Uh, looks like there's straight lines emanating from the center outwards. And uh, astronomers think this is because the, the star possibly had an extremely fast wind. Um, so stars, even our own sun, has a wind of charged particles that it's blowing away from, from its surface. And this is actually just a phenomenon called radiation pressure. Um, just the, the light hits... A, uh, a ch an iron and it gives it some momentum it pushes it outwards um, and in the sun it's called the Parker wind and it's not very strong and uh, in faster in hotter normally hotter younger brighter stars uh, you get much faster winds uh, and this one has a wind that's four times faster than anything that's or had a wind that's four times faster than anything that was known before um, and so that could be responsible for this very weird shape. And this is a supernova that we have actually featured on the podcast before. A couple of years ago, I spoke to uh, Hong Kong-based uh, astrophysicist Quentin Parker, who, uh, not the Parker of this name, a different, a different Parker, but was uh, has been looking at whether this was the uh, this particular remnant, this particular star, was the thing that was seen by Chinese astronomers uh, 850, 900 years ago. So it's it's long been a a mystery as to whether we can tie it up, but uh, being able to learn more about what was actually taking place and the, as you say, these super super luminal or not? No, sorry, not super luminal. <laughs> these these relativistic winds and the the high velocities there is uh, uh, is uh, great, and it and it looks like a firework, which is um, which is fun. Uh, back into the solar system. Um, we have a lot of rovers on Mars at the moment. We have the uh, Curiosity, we have Perseverance, the NASA rovers. Uh, we have um, uh, as well the Chinese rovers, Zhurong. Um, uh, that is uh, at the moment um, missing in action as far as we can tell. Like getting information out of uh, the official Chinese updates is a little hard. Um, it, it was expected to wake up after the Martian winter when temperatures got low and there may have been dust storms covering the planet in about kind of late December. And here we are, as we speak, it's late January. Uh, so um, fingers crossed it, it wakes up. But there's we've, no news is not normally good news in these circumstances, is it? Uh, no. Um, Beagle 2 had no news for a long time. And um, 
uh, that didn't end particularly well. Um, but um, I, yeah, I'm quite sad by uh, by Jurong uh, not waking up. Um, it's taken various people, you know, to say, well, you're relying on solar power and you're very far away from the sun, and that's why, you know, the really successful ones have had nuclear little nuclear powers. Mm power stations on board which have allowed them to to operate for so long um it's not particularly a nice thing to do to send a nuclear uh reactor into space but you know it's uh it's probably not going to do that much damage to the local inhabitants of mars um yeah so we just have to wait and see if Huron wakes up um it's been inactive for quite a long time now i think it took a selfie when it landed uh, or when it deployed in in May 2021, um, and uh, but that I think was while it was while it was deploying, and we haven't heard anything from it on the ground. We've heard a few th- a few things that it's yeah it's taken some selfies as it walked away from the landing platform, um, and and uh, but yeah not not a huge amount. Just like getting information out of sort of Chinese authorities, certainly in the Western world, can be a little bit difficult. Um, but uh, yeah, it is it is a shame if it's uh, if it's stopped. They've had such great success with U two two, the lunar rover on Mars. Uh, sorry, the lunar rover on the moon, uh, which has been uh, sex- successfully uh, navigating the trials of having long, sort of two week long lunar nights where it has to shut down and then wake up again um, after a period. So, um, but it is something that there's a huge risk in doing that if if some key components of your rover freeze or um succumb to the cold in some way then the wrong component doing that means it, it it will just never wake up you know if the alarm clock breaks basically it's not gonna get back in touch so fingers crossed there's still a chance it'll get back in touch and maybe uh maybe not but uh um it may be that we've heard the last uh, uh of Juron, uh, for the time being now you're listening to pythagorean astronomy and as well as looking at the news that we normally uh, try and talk about latest stories. We sometimes like to focus on uh, some other science as well. Uh, and the science this month uh, I wanted to focus on was cosmology uh, and our understanding of the universe on its grandest scales. Uh, there's been a number of developments over the years, over the decades, since the uh, first investigations of the afterglow of the Big Bang back in the 1960s uh, to various satellites and ground-based telescopes. Uh, and there's uh, some developments on, on ground-based telescopes uh, around the world that uh, is good to talk about, uh, specifically the Simons Observatory, based down in Chile, and Quixote, an instrument uh, based in Tenerife that's doing uh, also uh, looking at the skies to help us understand uh, cosmology and how the universe has evolved over billions of years. To find out more about both of these, I spoke to two people who are heavily involved. I spoke to Dr Ian Harrison, based here in Cardiff University, and also to Dr Bob Watson, uh, who's based up at the University of Manchester. And I began by asking Ian uh, to tell us uh, what we're learning about the universe. It's interesting, uh, the things that are the same and the things that are different. So as we look further and further away from us in the universe, we obviously uh, start at the edge of our atmosphere and we can see to the edge of the solar system. Once we go past the edge of the solar system, we get out into our galaxy and all the other uh, billions of stars which exist within our own galaxy and all the complicated structure which is within our galaxy and then we can go past that uh, 
into the vast expanses of comparatively extremely empty space. But around us, there will be billions more of those exact same galaxies. And as you say, because the further we look, the further back in time we are seeing, as we look at galaxies which are further and further away, then on average, there'll be older galaxies as well. So we can see the whole history of galaxies as we look further and further away, how they've formed and, and how they've grown. But then eventually we stop seeing fully formed galaxies and we gradually see less and less evolved um, smaller structures out in the universe uh, until eventually it becomes too early on in the universe and there were no stars forming to, to give out any kind of light. And before that even, um, we can actually see some light which was released by a, a different process, not from stars, um, but from this point in the early, early very early universe, um, almost uh, 14 billion years ago. So uh, we can look to a distance 14 billion light years away or so, and we see this cosmic microwave background light. And that is the first light that was ever free to travel across the universe. Um, and it was released, as I say, about 13.7 billion years ago. And the light that we see is from a point about 13.7 billion light years away. Obviously, we're on a podcast talking about the cosmic microwave background light that was released 13.7 billion light years ago at a distance of 13.7 billion light years away. But at that point right now, in the extremely distant universe, there could be another set of beings uh, talking on a podcast about the CMB light that was actually released in Cardiff or in Manchester or at the point of the Earth, um, because it was all uh, released at the same time everywhere in the universe and then has just taken time to travel to whatever spot it's in now, ready to be detected by whatever type of cosmologist exists at that point. Well, when, when we look at this light, this, this, this glow from the very earliest points in the universe from you know a few hundred thousand years after the big bang pervades all of all of the sky if, if you if you point telescopes and look at the sky this is for some telescopes at least this is basically all they see uh is this, this glow from the big bang but when we look at the sky the sky is pretty dark to my eyes when it's not cloudy uh and and that's because these telescopes are um they're not looking at the same kind of light we're seeing with our eyes what's what's going on there what kind of telescopes do we need to look at this light from the early universe well you want to look at uh using radio telescopes more, more specifically in, in the microwave region uh working an order of magnitude higher in frequency to your standard microwave which is sort of two and a half gigahertz so you want to look around about 10 to a few hundred gigahertz so this is when you said the the, the light is different it's actually the same so when it was a, when it set off this uh 14 billion years ago, it was orange red hot photons. Uh, but with the expansion of the universe, it's just sort of stretched it out. So it's now a thousand times uh, lower in frequency. And so now it's 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 this kiss in the microwave region. So if you have these radio telescopes, you point it up at the sky, you'll you won't hear anything um, interesting it'll just be a, a, a what we call a white noise hiss so that's just just power coming from the uh, the earliest moments of the big bang uh, but if you at, at first if you do a sweep over the the, the sky it'll look pretty uniform so you get this uh, equivalent temperature of something that's only three degrees above absolute zero about minus 270 uh, 
degree centigrade. Um, but it's not completely uniform. If you uh, sweep it across, and that's what we did with the, the Tenerife experiment back in the 1980s, uh, when it was uh, rough and ready, uh, you point two horns looking five degrees apart and look at the power coming into each. And you uh, measure temperature differences as of, of, of a, a, a few tens of a millionth of a degree Kelvin or centigrade, it doesn't matter, they're the same when you're talking at uh, differences in temperatures. Um, and what these correspond to is uh, little bits of the universe which are slightly denser, slightly hotter, and with time, with the evolution of the universe expanding, these hotter, denser regions will condense down and form uh, clusters of galaxies, and superclusters of galaxies. And the whole thing, if you look at simulations, you'll see the sort of um, glump, clumpy bits, uh, like, like bits of hot, hot soup, will actually uh, condense into these sort of filamentary, almost uh, web-like structures of galaxies and uh, clusters of galaxies in, in the, uh, uh, the connections of these, these webs where they join together. Mm. And, uh, and Ian, when we, when we look at this, uh, this cosmic soup, this, uh, this microwave background, we see the, these blobs, these very, very, very small irregularities in, in the temperature that, as Bob says, form the galaxies we, we, we see around us. Um, we're now, uh, this has been going on since the first detection of the cosmic microwave background, the CNB in the 1960s. We're, we're now in what's often called the era of precision cosmology and have been there for a while. Um, uh, quite how precise is this and, and what are we looking at uh, with these to, to, to determine the, the, how the universe has changed and evolved in, in, in its earliest and latest times? Yeah, I... I had a really nice perspective on this um, last autumn because uh, I was visiting Princeton University in, in the US. And whilst I was there, somebody told me that the uh, telescope called the Holmdel Horn Antenna, which was actually the telescope that was used to discover the cosmic microwave background all the way back in the 1960s, was nearby. It was about an hour's drive away. Um, and even though it's uh, defended by a fence which says no entry, there are quite a few very large gaps in that fence um, and it's very easy to just uh, go in and apparently people do it all the time and apparently there is no real uh, problem with this. So I got to go on a nice little pilgrimage to the uh, 1960s antenna which discovered the cosmic microwave background um, and see the 1960s technology on which that happened. It was very, very cool, very mechanical looking. Um, and I got some good selfies, which I now use in all of my talks for everything. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, from from that uniform hiss, which Bob was saying, you know, they were very confused when they first tried to look in the sky and they saw this uniform hiss from every single direction, uh, because that meant that if it was the same in every single direction, it needed to be some, from something extremely simple and something extremely far away, um, which it turns out is a reasonably good description of the beginning of the universe. So from that yeah, initial detection of this uniform hiss everywhere uh, through the differencing experiments that Bob was saying about as well, we can now measure incredibly precisely and incredibly sharp with incredibly sharp definition um, the distribution of those hot and cold blobs in that cosmic soup in the early universe. And if you can think about uh, maybe what happens if you poke a spoon into your soup, 
then the ripples that are generated in that soup will depend on what the soup is made of, how thick it is, how uh, many different pieces of large or small vegetables you've included, um, all those kind of things, how much oil you've put in. And it turns out that the the hot and cold spots that we see in the cosmic microwave background, which as Bob says, are these tiny little fluctuations in one part in uh, one part in 10,000, uh, we can measure these tiny little fluctuations. And the exact distribution of those comes from how the ripples traveled in that soup. It's a soup of plasma uh, in the early universe. And we can look at the distribution of those ripples and that tells us what the soup is made of. And from that, we can learn with quite a large amount of precision how much there is of different types of thing in the universe. And it's those ripples which are our best evidence for the amounts of normal matter there is in the universe. So that's the kind of thing that you and I and everything we can see, touch, smell, and everything is made out of. That's called baryonic matter. Uh, versus how much of the universe is made out of this mysterious thing called dark matter, which we see affecting other objects via gravity, but we cannot see in any other way. And this other extremely strange thing called dark energy, which we see affecting things by basically making them fly apart faster on the scales of the universe, uh, but we can't detect in, in any other way either. Uh, but what we can see is in this very early comparatively simple version of the universe where it was just all this one soup rather than this crazy mess of galaxies and people which have a lot of physics in, in how they uh, form and how they um, uh, operate and how they act. Um, we can see in the very early universe precisely what it was made of because of the, the ripples in the soup. Um, and it's really the, the CMB which has given us this picture of uh, dark matter and dark energy dominating the universe as opposed to just as uh, weedy little things made of the normal matter. And and, and Bob, you described, Ian mentioned there, it's got to be something extremely simple, extremely far away. And actually one of the beauties of the study of the early universe is that it, it, it is actually very simple. It's this plasma that is just uh, have these ripples moving through it. And if you know what it's made of, you can predict the size of the, the, the speed of the ripples and how far they travel and what imprint they imprint they leave. Um, but uh, the devil is always in the detail, um, and there's a lot of uh, a, a, a lot of tiny, tiny little effects that we're looking at. So I know one of the things that's being studied um, across the age, and we'll come on to the sort of the, the various instruments that have been and are detecting it uh, shortly. But um, people are studying this this light, this glow from the Big Bang, uh, and studying properties like its polarization and, and all this kind of stuff to get real detail of what's going on, um, and and actually not just a few hundred thousand years after the Big Bang, but even earlier than that, what what are we looking at in terms of those real precise, um, uh, the, the latest things we're looking at, the new holy grail in cosmology, if you like? Well, the new holy grail is called B-modes. So these are, is a very specific pattern that we're looking for in, in, in the early universe. So polarisation uh, is the, the photons of light have a partic uh, particular um, direction. They're, they're a transverse wave. So you've got the electrical field will uh, will uh, oscillate in a particular plane. So norm normal light uh, you just get is is just random. That polarization is has all possible angles, whereas the polarized light is is has a single or, or is dominated by a particular direction. And we see polarized light around us 
quite a lot, right? So any reflections, any reflections. scattering so can, can polarise light. So that's why sunglasses are polarised and yes. phone screens are polarised and all sorts of stuff. So, so you can do all sorts of tricks with uh, with polarised sunglasses. If you look at a, a, a laptop screen and rotate it round, you can make it go black. Uh, you can, uh, when you're looking at, uh, one of the reasons you have polarised sunglasses is you, uh, it removes the glare from, from, from the swimming pools and the sea. So if you rotate them around, you can you can enhance that glare or, or make it go away. And in, for the cosmic wave background, uh, what we're looking for is uh, gravitational waves, but very, very long wavelength gravitational waves. And the reason we're interested in is this, um, we're, we're looking for a particular, uh, there's a prediction from the very early universe that the, in order to have one part of the universe uh, basically looking like the same, on the other side, so in classically, these two regions of, of the universe have never been in contact. And one way to get around this is to sort of fudge that and say, well, actually, they were in contact, but they've now been uh, stretched apart fast in the very early universe so that uh, we, we don't think they're connected. And this is called inflation. And one of the predictions of inflation is that there are two types of um, perturbations to it. So these are little variations. So there's a variation um, called scalar, which is just the, the changing the number of uh, particles. So, so the, like the, if you put the little um, um, pasta into your soup, you've got more, more pasta in one part than another. So as time goes on, um, you've got these particles, they find out, oh, there's, 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 there's less over there, I'll push into there. So you get these pressure waves, and that's, that's all the scalar perturbations are. And then there's these tensor uh, perturbations, which, are, which I tend to think of, if you remember the gelatin that you got to make jelly out of, little cubes of gelatin, then you've got, uh, when you come out of inflation, there's little uncertainties in uh, how much the universe has expanded. So you have a little bit of this, this uh, uh, gelatin cube is compressed and a little bit stretched. So when you put them together and, uh, and time goes on, like the other waves came about by having too much um, particles in one place, then we got the, this part of space time is squashed a bit next to a bit that's, that's stretched. And then the way they resolve this is they, they, they spring, and that springiness is, is, is the... Uh, um, tensor perturbations, which is these gravitational waves. It's just space trying to twing, twang back into, back into shape. Um, and that gives you this very particular um, polarized signal, which is, uh, if you look at it, um, scalar perturbations gives you sort of radial or concentric circles in polarization, whereas the, 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 the BMOS gives you something that's slightly um, spiral, but it's got some vorticity to it. It's kind of swirly, um, isn't it? When it's you look swirly, at the that's right. Patterns. Yeah, yeah. That's the signal we're trying to find. And, and if that exists, then that means inflation existed because there's no other way of generating it uh, easily, uh, apart from that on, on the smaller scales, you can do it a different way, but that, that, that's easily to, uh, checked. Um, but that's a sort of the smoking gun for this inflation theory. Mm. Uh, and and Bob, I mean, you mentioned earlier the the nineteen eighties experiment, um, the the uh, Tenerife horn uh, experiment. So that was two horns, so essentially two two detectors looking at two different bits of the sky, two individual bits of the skies, but not seeing any detail beyond that. Um, we now have 
instruments that are, are looking still at the same kind of frequencies, microwave frequencies, as you said, um, but with a, a few more pixels than two uh, these days. Yes. Um, how have things changed over the years? What have been the big technological developments that have allowed us to, to measure this in, in more detail and with more pixels than just two? Well, there's two main de uh, developments. There's the, the overall sensitivity of the of the devices has got phenomenally more more um, sensitive. So when I started, we just had basically the same as a sort of transistor radio, uh, though it was cooled. And but now you have to go to sort of more esoteric systems that use quantum mechanics. So you have something, some property of this def uh, this uh, detectable change. Very, very rapidly with, with the temperature it's at. So these are sort of bolometer detectors and you can get down to phenomenally uh, accurate um, sensitivities. And then the other is the just sheer number of detectors. So I think for the Simons Observatory, you're talking about telescopes with uh, tens of thousands of detectors in, in a single plate. Uh, and that's what you need in order to get down to these um, sensitivities we need to get to see this uh, inflation signal. So we're, we're talking about things at sort of nano Kelvin level. So really, really, really tiny signals yeah. to, to pick out from, from everything else. Um, uh, now, those technological developments have, have meant we can, uh, we can get to very, very uh, high sensitivities to, to make, make these tiny measurements. But uh, I mean, Ian, what, what are we... When we look out at the universe, um, we're not just seeing the cosmic microwave background. Um, if we look out to, if we look out to a distance of, uh, you know, billions of light years, uh, we see the light from that was emitted that far away. But there's quite a lot, in fact, the rest of the universe, in fact, uh, between us and that point. Um, what kind of things are are getting in the way? And 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 if you're analysing this data, what what have you got to? What are you contending with? Um, to, to get the, the data you want. Yeah, you're contending with an enormous data analysis problem for, for sure. Um, because yeah, as you say, so this light is the cosmic microwave background and it turns out that there are many, 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 many things throughout the universe which happen to either emit or absorb microwaves which have absolutely nothing to do with the cosmic microwave background. Uh, other than they exist in the same universe and are governed by the same physics. Uh, so the the big one, which is uh, a big problem and right in front of us, is our, is our own galaxy. Um, so, of course, we're sat uh, within uh, or near one of the, the spiral arms of our galaxy, which means that uh, across a lot of the sky, there is the, the Milky Way that you can see, which is looking towards the center of our galaxy and where all of the stuff is in our galaxy. And a lot of that stuff, uh, whether it's um, uh, things which are being e e emitted by stars or re-emitted by gas and dust uh, in our own galaxy, uh, is seen in the same microwave telescopes as we're looking for the cosmic microwave background. So it becomes this enormous uh, challenge to both understand the, the physics well enough and understand uh, how to work with the, the properties of the data well enough that you can try and uh, remove the parts of the signal that you're seeing, which are coming from things like our galaxy, uh, but also things like other more distant galaxies, which again will be uh, absorbing and emitting these microwave, uh, this microwave radiation in the same way. So a lot of the the 
techniques are called um, uh, either component separation or foreground removal techniques. And as cosmologists, we think of them a lot as foreground removal because we're trying to get rid of this uh, uh, stuff which is in our way of the cosmic microwave background. But uh, it is true that we have allies in many of the other astronomers and astrophysicists who are interested in absorb in who are interested in observing those phenomena uh, in the microwave uh, at as high sensitivities as possible too. So we have allies who want to separate and characterize and model our own galactic signal so that they can understand better the physics of the galaxy. And there's a lot of dialogue between cosmologists and, and galactic physicists uh, because we uh, both are interested in the data and what that can tell us about the galaxy. And cosmologists are interested in modeling the galaxy so it can, in some sense, be removed from uh, being in front of the cosmic microwave background. And we're interested in that both from a, a, a spatial point of view as a, as a map on the sky and also a, a, a spectral point of view. So how that map changes as you look at it in slightly different frequencies um, and different types of different pieces of physics can, can tell us a lot about what we expect for the, the galaxy in both that spatial and spectral dimension. Um, uh, and we tend to use both of those pieces of information together in order to try and remove the effect of the galaxy. And, and uh, Bob, you work on an experiment uh, that is doing just just this. Uh, it is it is helping uh, uh, make measurements of, or it's not helping, it is making measurements of our galaxy uh, and, and everything else as well uh, in these kind of frequency ranges to help map out um, what some of these, these foreground objects look like, these things that are getting in the way of the CMB. So your experiment's called uh, Quixote, um, which is, 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 as the name suggests, it's based in, in Tenerife. It sound, sounds Spanish. Um, what's, uh, what's the Quixote experiment doing and, and what's, it, what's the, the latest data shown? us? Okay, so the, the Quixote uh, experiment has just released uh, maps, um, data products, um, for the, the, the lower part of the, the, the cosmic microwave background, so the 10 to 20 gigahertz. And because, um, if you remember uh, a few years ago, there was all this fuss about BICEP2, uh, prematurely announced beam loads have been discovered. That was due to a foreground of, of, of dust. Uh, now on the, and that was on the higher frequency. On the lower frequencies, you've got the problem from synchrotron emission from our, our own galaxy. And these are relativistic electrons which are spiraling around the, the, the magnetic field and emitting. And that has it, the, uh, the radiation that, that gets stronger as you go to, to lower frequencies. So it's about a, a, a minus three is the power loss, which means if you drop a factor two in frequency, it gets eight times more powerful. Before that, the, the, the lowest sort of frequency that you made a, a, a map as equivalent was, was the, uh, the, the lowest frequency of uh, W map at 23 gigahertz. So we, we, we got quite a, a stronger signal from synchrotron and that's been mapped over the north part of the sky. And we can see the galactic plane, the north polar spur, uh, the fan region, uh, various sources. But you, if, even if you go up into the, uh, away from the galactic plane, you can still see um, polarized signal. And one of the main results from, from the coyote experiment is that the, the variations in this uh, relationship between 
uh, the power of the signal and the frequency varies a little bit more than was expected, well, by a factor two or three more than was expected from the uh, uh, simple models. Uh, so that has a knock-on effect when you try and uh, make these four ground predictions for the these B-mode experiments at sort of 100 gigahertz. Uh, if the, this variations of the, the this um, microwave radiation from our own galaxy varies so much, when you do the extrapolation up, uh, it makes predicting what the, the, the foregrounds you have to subtract more difficult. And that's what basically what the Kyoto is sort of pointing out at this moment. That's it for this month, but it's only part one of our exploration of the dawn of time. We've looked at how Quixote, this Tenerife experiment, is going to let us explore the emission from our own galaxy to let us see back to the dawn of time with more precision. Next time, we're going to look at the advantages and disadvantages of doing all of this from space and what we can still hope to do from the ground. My thanks to Ian Harrison and Bob Watson and, of course, Edward Gomez. Don't forget you can find past episodes and subscribe to the podcast at pythagastro.uk. You can also find us on Spotify. Just search for Pythagorean Astronomy. Until next month, goodbye. You've been listening to Pythagorean Astronomy, an extended version of this month's Astronomy Roundup from Pythagoras' Trousers, a weekly science and technology radio show presented by me, Rhys Phillips. You can catch up on full episodes of Pythagoras' Trousers, subscribe to our podcast and get in touch by going to www.pythagoras-trousers.radio.fm. <laughs>